Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 6 through 15. And as was mentioned earlier, also, happy Mother's Day. You know, if you think about uh, mothers for a second, who is it that sacrifices any more than mothers do? I mean, mothers go beyond what is expected. They go beyond really what is rational and smart and sometimes for the sake of their children. And that's true. We know that. We've experienced that. that so many times moms just go beyond the call of duty. And literally, if anybody in the world would die for their children, it would be mothers and fathers. They would die for their children. They would die for someone, for their kids. And I think about that because as we think about mothers today, I think about the ultimate show of sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. Because some people, Scripture says, would die for those who they love or their family. But to die for someone who is their enemy, who's against them, that's just not fathomable. I mean, it's, we can't think about that. We can't ponder that because we would never naturally ever do that. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died for those who were his enemy. Jesus died for those who were against him. In fact, think of it in this level that Jesus created us and he died for those he created. And so as we begin to move into the passages about the crucifixion and preparing for the next couple of weeks, Think about the gospel. Think about what Jesus did, and that's what today is all about. So let's pray, and we'll be in Mark chapter 15, verses 6, six through 15. Father God, we thank you for just technology and allowing us to stream this message out to people who are not able to be here today, God. And we pray that you'll remove distractions the best as possible. I pray that uh, people will be able to focus in and, and to learn from your word, God. We know that Many people right now are, are, are not being nourished through God's Word in the way that they once were. And we know that uh, just in our congregation, there's people who are struggling in their marriages. They're struggling with their kids and the constant uh, just interaction all day long. And there's so many things that are challenging us at this point that we haven't dealt with in a while. And God, I pray that you will allow us to run to the gospel. And as Mitch said, preach the gospel to ourselves during this time and see the gospel and remind ourselves of the gospel. And God, may we be in your word each and every day so that you can give us what we need to fulfill your word, your will, and to live your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you were with us last week, you saw that Jesus had finished up the religious portion of his trial. The, the, the religious leaders had done what they could. They got Jesus pretty much to admit that he was God, and that's all they needed to move him to the next phase, which was the civil trial which is before the Roman governor of Judea, which is Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was the only one who had the authority to then determine that Jesus should die for his crimes. And Pilate, we saw last week, is reluctant to do that. And the religious leaders, they're, they're not going to stop at anything. We know that. They're not going to stop at anything until Jesus is dead. They hated Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They despised the authority that he carried, the weight he carried, that he could say, you've heard it said, but I say this. Who does that? Nobody does that. And Jesus did that. He claimed to speak for God. And he exposed the religious leaders, their hypocrisy. He exposed them for who they really were. And so they were set on the fact that they wanted him dead. But Pilate, the Roman governor, he doesn't really care about all these religious details. That's really not his problem. He doesn't care about the theological com complaints against Jesus. He would care less if Jesus blasphemed uh, God or not. All he cared about was, what is this doing for his standing? I mean, how is this going to affect him before Rome? Uh, is this going to, the result 
going to bring about an uprising among the Jewish people? Or is it going to cause people to rebel against his authority? So that's what he's concerned about. And so as he's starting to deal with this, keep in mind that, that when he goes in verse 2 and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That's really the heart of what he's concerned about. Are, are you the one who is putting yourself up in a place where you could possibly be a threat to our peace? to the threat, be a threat to the Roman Empire at some level to bring a small revolution against Rome and cause trouble for them. And I told you last week that history reports that Pilate, he's a terrible leader. He's an awful leader. He's cruel. He's, even by Roman standards, he, he's ruthless. He's full of bribery. He, he's been known to take his soldiers and use them as thugs to crush people and bring them into submission with an iron fist. And so by the time of Jesus' trial, Pilate's in a difficult position with Rome, all right? He's, he's not in good favor with Rome, and as I mentioned last week, the, the religious leaders, they're aware of this. They're playing little games, power games with, with him. And so as we get to this point, we wonder, because Pilate, we know he's not a nice guy, so why is he wavering in the fact that, why does he just put Jesus to death? Why is he contemplating this? Why is he wavering back and forth? Because uh, he knows Jesus isn't a real threat. He knows he's not threatening the empire. So what's going on here? Maybe he doesn't want to give in to the religious leader's wishes. Maybe he just doesn't want to appease them, and he wants to show who's in control, truthfully. And so Pilate, uh, even though he's convinced of Jesus' in, uh, innocence, I'm sure he questions, like, what's the deal with the people of Israel? Are they for Jesus, or is they supporting him? I mean, just five days earlier... Jesus came into Jerusalem, and people were lining the streets singing his praises. And we're dur during Passover here, there's three million people probably in Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's a huge crowd. I mean, the, the city is just inflated massively, 30 times its normal population. And so there's all kinds of people there. So I'm sure that he's taking these things into account. And John records the Jewish leaders actually trying to force Pilate's hand by saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. If you release him... You're not working with Rome. And so they're trying to work against Jesus here. And so maybe another bad report to Caesar and potentially Pilate's going to be removed from office. He's in a tough spot. And so Luke tells us that the religious leaders, they realize that Pilate isn't going to do probably what they want him to do, that he's backing down. He's, he's, he, he's kind of wavering here. And, and so they mention the fact that this man, they said, it, Luke records, this man has caused an uproar all the way up in Galilee. All the way to Galilee. What are they saying there? They're saying, basically, Pilate, you're not doing your job. You're not fulfilling your job. This guy's causing trouble all over the nation while you do nothing about it. But Pilate, again, trying to get off the hook here. He's not sure how this is going to affect him politically. As soon as he hears them say Galilee, Luke tells us that he jumps on that and he thinks, oh, here's a brilliant solution for me to get out of this. All right, so in Galilee, uh, you know, that's under Herod's territory, so I'm going to send him up to Herod and let Herod deal with this. And again, Mark doesn't record this event, but Pilate sends him briefly to Herod, over to Herod. Herod um, is actually interested in seeing Jesus. He's heard a lot about Jesus. He's heard about his miracles and the things he does, and he wants to bring Jesus in and actually get Jesus to perform a miracle in front of him, to get him to do something. And Jesus, the text says, remains silent. He won't speak to Herod. He won't give him anything that Herod could use. He won't do a miracle, obviously, for, for Herod. And so Herod 
after mocking him and some of uh, Herod's men, treating Jesus cruelly and mocking him in the palace there, they sent him back to Pilate for Pilate to deal with and to consider what to be done. And then also we learn from uh, Matthew's account that at this time, Pilate's wife, she actually has a dream at some point during this, uh, this trial. She sends uh, information to her husband that she's had this dream. She's very disturbed, and she refers to Jesus as that righteous man. And she says that she suffered a great deal as a result of this. Now, Romans placed a great deal of value and weight on dreams and visions. And so Herod has to, I mean, I'm sorry, Pilate has to pause and take this seriously. And this is coming from his wife. And so this is a big deal. And we don't know the specifics of the dream, but we know that she's disturbed enough to warn Pilate. So he's in this precarious situation. He's in this terrible situation. What's he going to do? Let's pick back up with our text in verse 6. Now at the feast, this is Passover, he used, being Pilate, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So apparently there's this custom where Rome would try to appease the masses, appease the crowd, keep peace, and they would release one Jewish prisoner during the Passover time. And so you had this large group of people, this large crowd had gathered there at the, pilot, the, the palace, and they were asking for either Barabbas' release from prison, or maybe there were multiple groups lobbying for various different criminals who were being held. And so they were asking for amnesty for somebody who was on trial or, or condemned to death. And so, again, Pilate finds another way potentially to get out of crucifying Jesus. So they're asking for Barabbas to, you know, be released possibly. And so, so Pilate, he thinks that, you know, maybe they'll go for Jesus' release rather than Barabbas. And so he answered them, verse 9, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him, Jesus, up. So Pilate knew that the religious leaders had not handed Jesus over to them just because they were loyal to Rome. Pilate assumes that maybe many in the crowd were actually on Jesus' side, and so they were wanting Jesus to be released. And as I said, just a few days earlier, they were saying that he was the Messiah. And so Pilate gives the, uh, the crowd the option of either releasing Jesus or this Jewish radical named Barabbas, who the text tells us he's a murderer and a leader of an insurrection. Now, this wasn't that uncommon. This wasn't uncommon for people who were zealots at that time who thought that the way to deal with this and advance God's kingdom and bring uh, glory to God would be to run the Romans out and to rebel against them. And there were all these factions in Israel who had different opinions, but there were these zealots. And so Barabbas apparently had instigated a, an armed re revolt against the Roman Empire and committed murder even, it says in verse 7, in this insurrection. So in this insurrection against Rome, more than likely a Roman soldier or somebody who was loyal to Rome had been killed. So he was in a lot of trouble, obviously. He was more than likely condemned to death and sitting on death row. And he's caused a lot of trouble for Israel, the, the regular rank-and-file people, because these people who were bringing about these insurrections, Rome did not um, look on that very fondly. They would come down and, and, and squelch that rebellion. And the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, they were constantly working in collaboration, in cooperation with Rome, 
And they would actually scout out these people who were bringing up, trying to cause these insurrections because it was in their best interest, it was in their power, best power to, to not allow this to happen because they knew that it could affect their authority, could affect their power within the nation, and they knew how harshly Rome would deal with this. And so you have this guy, Barabbas, a zealot, who's armed revolt, even committed murder, and Pilate thought for sure by giving the people the choice, they would choose to release Jesus over Barabbas, but not so. Things did not go as Pilate had planned. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have, re- to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So they go work the crowd some way. They're stirring people up. They're motivating them to reject Pilate's offer of amnesty for Jesus and demand the release of Barabbas instead. So if you've been tracking with us over the last year, you've watched a lot of things happen in the life and ministry of Jesus. One thing that I was always interested in and wondered about was, how did the crowd so quickly turn on Jesus? Why were they so pro-Jesus and ushering him in as Messiah, and then all of a sudden now they're like, crucify him, crucify him, destroy this guy? What happened? Well, a couple things here. As I looked into this and wondered about it, these aren't necessarily the same people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem just a few days earlier. Remember, there were numerous pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Passover. Many, many. And so, a lot of scholars think that the local residents of Jerusalem would be more behind the religious leaders, whereas those who were in the outlying countries, um, areas of the, of the country, would be more supportive of Jesus, and that's where he did a lot of his ministry. And then other people were just simply disappointed. Here we have Jesus, who just five days earlier accepted the title of Messiah, and now we see him standing before the people, being mocked, being beaten. He's bruised, he's battered. What kind of Messiah is that, that he would allow that to happen, that this Messiah who's supposed to deliver them from the Romans, and now we find this guy actually being held against his will by the Romans, and ultimately going to be put to death by the Romans. So he was a weak Messiah. Maybe they turned on him because of that reason, and they were disappointed in Jesus. His claims did not come true according to what they are seeing at this moment. But even with all this going on, Pilate, the text shows, is still reluctant to kill Jesus. Verse 12, and Pilate again, he said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What will I do with him? In verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, then why? What evil has he done? So he tries to change the mind of the crowd. He tries to get them to to be swayed, but it doesn't matter. They're set. The religious leaders had done their work, and the course and the destiny of Jesus appears to be set. So Pilate bows to their will. Verse 14b, they shouted the more, crucify him. What has he done? What evil? Crucify him. They yell even louder, get rid of this guy. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate pronounces the death sentence. And this scourging in verse 15 
If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it really does get it right. It's an awful, awful beating. It's an awful, horrible thing for a person to have to go through. The Romans tried to get them as near death as possible. The whip that they used would have had shards of, of, of iron or metal in it. And as they whipped the back of a, of a criminal or a slave who had, had revolted or someone who had, uh, who had violated the Roman law, that, that not only would the whip just hit the back and tear the skin, but it would cut into the bone and into the muscle itself, and it would rip away. And if you've seen that scene, it, it, it's so accurate, just excruciating pain that Jesus would have to bear. And he had him scourged, and it ripped the flesh. And Pilate turns, and he releases Barabbas. And after this, he sends Jesus off to be crucified. Let's think about Pilate for a second. Pilate failed miserably in his leadership because why? He wanted to do the politically correct thing. He feared a riot. He, feel, uh, he feared the political implications that possibly could come from him from Rome. And this was a, just a travesty of justice and one of the most wicked acts in all of history that an innocent man, the only good person to truly ever live upon this earth and walk this earth, that he's convicted and sentenced to death for crimes he didn't commit. And Pilate, he tries to distance himself from this. Matthew tells us that he literally washes his hands before the crowd and he says, I'm innocent of his blood. But he's not innocent. He's not innocent at all. And in fact, although Pilate did not understand the significance of the question that he asked back in verse 12, it's the ultimate question for every human being that they must answer. Look at verse 12 again. Then what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? What shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? You see, salvation for every person hinges upon the response to that question. What would you do with Jesus? You know, we have two incredible pictures of the gospel here. One based upon history, potentially, and the other based upon our text. Let's think about Pilate for a second. Pontius Pilate. He ultimately had the final say-so in the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's the thing, and we don't know for sure if this is accurate or not, but third century writer Tertullian writes that Pilate became a Christian. He writes that Pilate ultimately turns and puts his faith in a resurrected Jesus. Now, there's no historical evidence before the third century of that, but let me just say, if that happened, what grace, what amazing grace that the man who ultimately had the final say in Jesus' crucifixion, and he says, do it, that he is able then to receive the grace of God and turn and put his faith in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. That's what we sing, amazing, amazing grace. Because only God can do that. Only God can look at his worst enemies and say, I'm offering you a pardon. What will you do with Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus? Because if you will turn to Jesus, all your sins will be forgiven. Pilate 
had that opportunity, and maybe Pilate took that opportunity. And then the next person, Barabbas, the murderer and the thug. But what a beautiful picture of the gospel for us. Think about this for a second. Three crosses. We see them everywhere. Three crosses. You can drive on the interstate and see three crosses. There's a man who has funded multiple crosses throughout the nation for people to be reminded of the gospel. But you know what? The third cross, the middle cross, which is the one that we typically know that Jesus died on, that cross could have been meant for Barabbas. You realize that? That Barabbas could have easily, that would have been his cross for his crucifixion because Barabbas deserved to die. He was a criminal. He was a murderer. He violated the laws, and he was sentenced to death and should have died. But what happened? Instead of Barabbas dying this horrible execution on the cross, instead, Jesus Christ died in his place. Barabbas, guilty of rebellion, murder, and deserving of death, and Jesus instead dies, and Barabbas goes free. That's a picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. What a picture. Jesus dies Barabbas goes free. The guilty man freed. The innocent man crucified. The gospel. The gospel. See, here's the thing. If you understand the gospel, you know that you're Barabbas and I'm Barabbas. That all of us, we deserve hell, but Jesus took hell instead. We deserve the cross, but Jesus took the cross. We deserved separation from God for eternity, Jesus took separation from God to redeem us and to give us life and hope. We deserve to be judged. Jesus was judged in our place. Wow. Jesus took our place. Jesus took what we deserved so that we could have life. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love. Amazing grace. What grace. But here's the problem. Let's make this real practical for a second. Christians, when we begin to forget the gospel, when we begin to live as if the gospel is something that we did in the past, it's a decision we made, and now we go on and just to live our lives and try to do the good thing and the right thing at times, and we forget the gospel, it brings about major, major malfunction in our Christian life. Let me read a, a quote, two quotes actually, that were in my devotional a few days ago, a devotion I read by Paul Tripp. He writes, To the degree that you forget the grace that you have been given, to that same degree, it is easier for you not to extend grace to others. When we forget grace, we don't extend grace. When we forget that we deserve the cross, we deserved what Barabbas deserved, and Jesus took it in our place. When we forget that, we all of a sudden, we don't want to extend grace to anyone else. Why should we? Because they're undeserving, because we think we're some deserving of something that we aren't deserving of. And we begin to live for ourselves rather than live for the gospel. And then here's the second quote. To the extent that you forget how much you've been forgiven, 
to that same extent, it is easier for you not to forgive the people in your life. If you fail to carry around with you a heart of gratitude for the love that you have been freely given, it is easy for you not to love others as you should. When we forget the forgiveness of the Gospel, then we can hold grudges. We can be bitter. We can say they need to pay for what they've done. But when we see that we should be in hell, that we should be on that cross, all of a sudden, we're willing to forgive our enemies. We're willing to extend grace to those who have harmed us. We're willing to, to love people like we should because we understand the love that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with these two amazing verses. Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to re- lead you to repentance. And then 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ motivates us. It spurs us on. It fuels our passion. That's what Christ loved. In fact, let me read the entire two verses for you. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Here's the substitution. Jesus, He died for all, therefore all have died. And if He died for all, then those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that you and I might live. So why don't we preach the Gospel to ourselves? Why do we listen to our condemning spirit, our minds, the culture that we live in, the media, the Facebook posts? Why do we allow all that stuff to stir us up and make us angry at everyone and everybody when we are people of grace? Yes, there's righteous anger. There's times where, where, it, where we should have righteous anger over situations that happen and, and through injustice that happens. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that we are critical, we're mean to people, we're angry, we're unforgiving. And we carry this around with us. And we're not exemplifying Christ. And when we preach the gospel to ourselves, all of a sudden we say, wow, woe is me the worst of all sinners. I'm Barabbas. I'm going to ask Buzz to come up here and join me today. This is Buzz Beecham. He's one of our elders here at Grace Church. And he, as many of you know who are watching, he goes a good deal of the year to Africa to work at African Bible College, a luxury resort there in Africa, right? Tell us, uh, Buzz, how does grace compel you? All the things that we just talked about, how does that motivate you to do what you do? Good morning. It's an honor to be here this morning uh, to represent God in Africa as well as the first time I've been in Grace Church this year, I think. Been in Africa for a while and finally getting back home with that lockdown. So it's a privilege to be in Grace Church. Thank you. Uh, Grace does compel uh, it doesn't just take over your life completely. It's a growth process. You can think of grace when you start out. The first aspect of grace is salvation. And at that point, you're in the process of sanctification. 
you know, God and uh, through the Holy Spirit, and you are working out what that grace will look like in your life to become more Christ-like. The goal of grace is for you to become more Christ-like personally. And so you're in the process of sanctification. Uh, I started out, number one, I didn't receive Christ until I was age 30 years old. So God was very gracious to allow me to be saved at all at age 30. Most people will never be saved past age 25 or so. But at age 30, I received Christ and then started working. I was a you know very pragmatic type guy. I try to quantify things. Uh, to me, I, I look at it and say, you know, how can I look at my life and see that I've grown more Christ-like? What things have I done for Christ in this past year? And every year I would try to do something additional, whether it be uh, to spend more time in leadership in church or teaching Sunday school or studying the Bible or praying. And then I, when I finally got into missions, it didn't start out immediately. I just didn't become a Christian. The next day was over in Africa. It was a growth process. If you can think about it, John, the, uh, like the fruit of the Spirit, uh, as soon as we become Christians, we have all the nine fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have all nine of those fruits in our lives, but it's up to us and the Holy Spirit together to grow them into something that would be glorifying to Christ. So uh, it, you don't start out overnight doing big things. You take baby steps at first. First you need to be fed, then you do little things, and it's a growth process. So I started out uh, in, as a deacon, teaching Sunday school, finally going on mission trips, weekly mission trips to Jamaica. Uh, I was a dentist here in Bainbridge for 35 years before I started really getting into it too much. Started going to Jamaica, and then longer stints, finally going to Africa, working as a dentist at African Bible College in Malawi at the dental clinic there. Then finally, Jack Chinchin, who was a uh, starter, main man of African Bible College, uh, he said, Buzz, we need you in Liberia. They had gone through a problem and needed you know, some help with teaching there. And I had, was challenged at, at my master's in theology, so then I was actually able and eligible to go teach uh, in African Bible College. Yeah, and let me just, uh, just because of the time, let me just go back to, like, the, the question I framed up. So God's grace, obviously your salvation. I mean, yes. 30 years old. And then a process to get you to, to where it's sacrificing so much. But let me, let me ask you to kind of put yourself in the situation of, like, day-to-day -day people who are just going through their lives and may not ever end up in Africa. How should the grace of God compel them to love other people? Thank you. Uh, as I say, there's a way to kind of quantify your life. Every so often, take a step of where you are. Uh, in the Bible, they talk about standing stones. Every time you had a great, significant win in your Christian faith, you set up a marker that you can look back at and say, at that time, I did this. So set up spiritual markers in your life to look at and see and try to measure your growth. Are you doing more this year than you did last year? And that is, that is what I would challenge you to do. If you think about grace, I think there are three fruits to grace, three fruits. One is forgiveness. Are you forgiving more? Are you quicker to forgive? The other is mercy. Are you quicker to show mercy now this year than you were last year? And the third marker is that of service or sacrifice. Are you serving God more this year than you did last year? The whole idea of grace in your life is working out through it is to become more and more like Christ. Are you becoming more Christ-like as time goes on? Is more of your life spent upon his word and defiling what he wants you to do? And, what is, and, what's the opposite of being motivated by grace? What, what, 
what does a life look like that somebody's a Christian, maybe even has uh, good intentions to live like Christ, but they're allowing the wrong things to motivate them versus God's grace, which is the ultimate, we know, the ultimate motivator. What, what are some, some bad motivators for Christians? Well, it's easy to backslide, backslide, like you sit in the back row of the church, you know, where you sit soaking sour. And, uh, like there's people back there today? Well, <laughs> not too many examples here today on that. But uh, too often it's easy to find our comfort zones and we slip in it. We need to be proactive. We need to be pointed in what we do. It's not always easy to grow. You know, uh, you put yourself in a situation where it's a challenge. You know, uh, people will make fun of me. People will think bad of me. I won't mess up. I, um, you know, and I can guarantee you many points in my Christian life I have messed up. But that's where you grow. When things go wrong, that's where you really see growth. So let Christ challenge you. And, yeah, things are going to go wrong. But you grow through that. You learn from that. And you'll be stronger and better because of it. So it is growing to be more and more like Christ and, you know, from, from day one. Well, Buzz, I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And I want everyone here to just focus on God's grace this week. Think about God's grace and what he has done that your salvation isn't something you have, and it's for me, and I can just, you know, be safe, and I'm going to heaven when I die, but yet we live our lives as if God doesn't exist, and God wants to work through us, and he wants to remind us of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us, and he wants to remind us that we deserve God's wrath fully upon us, but instead, Jesus took that wrath in our place, and that only starts with being in the Word and, and allowing God's Spirit to remind us of the truths of the gospel. So let's pray, and we'll finish with one last song. Father God, we thank you so much for, uh, again, for just the technology we have to be able to broadcast the service. God, we thank you for the potential next week to open back up at some level and allow people in the room. God, we need you to speak into our lives. We admit that we can go days and weeks uh, of just trying to live life on our own and forgetting the incredible grace that you gave to us. And we forget that we are Barabbas, that we deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve to be, be called guilty. But instead, Jesus took all of that so that we could go free. God, help us to contemplate that. Help us to Focus in on that. Let's thank you daily for that. And we know through that will motivate us to extend that love and forgiveness and even draw us out of our comfort zones to do incredible things like Buzz has talked about, to go to people and to love people for the sake of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.